Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The explosive devices just kept on coming today. Robert De Niro and Vice President Biden got theirs. And the president decided on Twitter to blame the media. A very big part of the anger we see in today's society is caused by the purposely false and inaccurate reporting of the mainstream media that I refer to as fake news. It's gotten so bad and hateful that it is beyond description. Now we'll go to Steve Clemens, Washington editor-at-large for The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Steve. My pleasure, Jerome. What are we to make of what's going on today? And, you know, we're seeing all these explosive devices go out there. They're clearly the work of somebody who has taken in a lot of the Trump enemies and is sending these devices. What should people think about this? Well, I think people should be worried that no matter what their political passions, that when a society begins to see violence of this kind erupt, that seems to be political violence, we all need to take a pause back and dial down the rhetoric and remind each other that we're on the same boat. You know, this thing called civitas, uh, this, this old notion, this Greek notion that, you know, despite vigorous debate, despite differences, everyone was civically still tied together. And I think we need to remind ourselves, Republican, Democrat, or every other complexion, that we're on the same boat and need to get into this. I think that the president's comments were incredibly unhelpful, uh, potentially antagonizing and aggravating, and could be seen as a justification by whomever this perpetrator is, uh, as the president giving a nudge of support. And we should be outraged by it. The president should be ashamed of himself, and he should walk it back. And if he doesn't, his party should. And if they don't, then there's an election in two weeks. I think the election is something that's really giving this a lot more partisan flavor. And there's so many people on the on the far right who are saying things about how this could be something that liberals are doing to themselves to make Republicans look bad. There's a lot of that stuff going on out there. We don't know anything about who this bomber is. I assume that given the scale and the research that this individual or individuals uh, put into reaching some of the private homes and residences of many of these political leaders, that at some point... I think that when people begin talking about false flag efforts and whatnot, they're creating fantasies as well. We don't know who did this. We don't know what levers they're pushing. We don't know what sides of the aisle. All we're doing is to see explicitly that the president, the previous president, the previous vice president been targeted, and many liberal icons from George Soros to Robert De Niro, uh, even the Open Society Institute offices of the George Soros Foundations beyond his home in Bedford. So I think that People need to walk back and, and be careful of creating fantasies about what this may be caused by. You know, we don't know is the answer. Let the FBI do their work. Can we agree that this is an act of terrorism? There are some people who, on the Republican side, Mitch McConnell described it as an act of terrorism. Uh, is this something we should think through? I believe it is an act of terrorism. I think that when you have pipe bombs going through the mail to political and social leaders meant to cause harm and mass casualties, yes, I would call this beyond what we would normally call heinous criminal activity. This this does get into uh, potential Timothy McVeigh-style domestic terrorism. And we don't know, again, who this who may be the perpetrators here, but, but clearly uh, there's a desire. 
desire to um, deepen the rifts, deepen the tensions, create potential anarchy, uh, and make an already tense system in the nation much, or tense arrangement in the nation much tenser. I'm talking with Steve Clemens, Washington Editor-at-Large of The Atlantic, and we're talking about some of the explosive devices that are being sent around to uh, prominent Democrats and people like George Soros. Uh, Today, uh, Vice President Biden and uh, Robert De Niro got explosive devices. Does it feel to you sometimes like... um the the whole rhetoric situation and the things are really uh, coming apart. Uh, the the way we go about our politics these days is is too far gone. Um, President Trump has been at these rallies and um, really ends up stoking things up with a lot of uh, you know untrue statements, and he's gonna. He's going overboard on the caravan. He's going to bring out the military for the caravan. And uh, there seems to be a lot of unnecessary hothouse rhetoric there. I mean, the president, I I really regret what I'm about to say, but I I see the president as a kind of P.T. Barnum of incredibly awful theater right now and riling up people. and And I don't want to call anyone... Uh, fringe, but I can call groups fringe. The fringe groups in American politics. I think it's very important that people remember that the vast majority of Americans aren't supportive of this kind of behavior, this sort of heckling and bullying and outrageous lies and positioning, even to the point where the pres- one of the president's biggest supporters, whom I've you know, talked to a number of times, Anthony, Anthony Scaramucci, is out with his book and in interviews calling the president a purposeful liar, a regular liar. I mean, this isn't a minor thing. This is a big thing. So it's not only lying, but it is creating mistruths. And, and we've just seen uh, the president not talk necessarily about Alex Jones, but about commentators and conspiracy theorists as if they're part of legitimate conservative commentary. And they're not. And we should all become bolder, actually, uh, I think, and say not. Because what we're seeing is fringe groups and fringe players become, uh, in their spike of interest and activity, become more dominant in the media right now. And I think the president is doing this and engaging in this theater because of the election coming up, because he thinks those groups will will deliver a success to his followers in the, in the House and the Senate. And I just find it outrageous. I mean, we all find it outrageous. I think any normal, sensible person would find this behavior outrageous. So that then asks the question of who are the people who are not normal and sensible um, who are willing to be entertained by this? And that's what we're at war with in the country. In the middle of this, there's all these uh, attacks on the mainstream media that the president is doing, and he's called the press the enemy of the people. There's lots of countries and places, and you know we're watching the Jamal Khashoggi thing unfurl before our eyes, and uh, violence against the press is something that it's almost like a promise. It's almost like a guarantee that something's going to happen. Well, we've had people like Jim Acosta and uh, John Dickerson and Chuck Todd and others out there saying we are seeing the pot begin to boil and journalists are being harassed and bullied at rallies and in other places. This is another manifestation, of course, we saw in Baltimore. Uh, We've seen around in other places um, journalists gunned down and killed. This is just in this country, but what is really happening also globally is we're giving a green light to any autocrat elsewhere to jail, harass, and even murder um, their own journalists. Journalism is a vital part of democracy. It's a vital part of keeping uh, power accountable. And we are seeing the president of the United States wage war against speech, wage war against thought, wage 
war against diverse opinion and wage war against those journalists and the press that are protected by the First Amendment. And people need to look. I see a lot of people in the country worried about their rights uh, to guns in the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, free speech precedes that, and it's something that is sacred and and hallowed in our Constitution uh, and in the founding of this country. And the president uh, has that principle under siege right now. And all I can say in response is that it's not the way to run a democracy. It's not the way to be a president of the United States. Um, And I think the majority of Americans probably think the same thing, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. What did you make of the president's use of the word nationalism and embrace of the word nationalism this week, even though he said he knew that it had some bad connotations, that he was going to embrace it? And some of his supporters have said, it's okay. He's just um, saying this is another manifestation of America first. He's not a globalist. He is a nationalist. This is his thing. Uh, How does that fit into everything we're seeing? I think it's another bit of color in a in a track towards a jingoistic, pugnacious nationalism that he represents. Um, I've been less shocked by his embrace of that terminology. I think it's perfectly appropriate for people to be shocked and say, you know, that this is inappropriate. And there are lots of other ramifications of what that word means in the mouth of the president of the United States or of any great global stakeholder. I get that. But it's not something I'm surprised by, because from the moment he talked about America first, which comes with its own horrible connotations uh, in pre-World War II America, um, and the anti-Semitism that was wrapped up in that, and the disregard um, for the killing and murder of Europeans that was underway at that time. And, And I find this playback to language and postures of pre-World War II Europe and an isolationism that was was very prevalent in the United States, we're going back and repeating history in scary ways. Um, So I find it disgusting uh, and troubling. I don't find it surprising. In fact, I'm surprised that Trump didn't embrace that word as a brand earlier, given how he clung so tightly to the America First sloganeering. Right now in the polls, the president has really strong support in the Republican Party, and he's got poll numbers, uh, 47% approval ratings. Uh, These these are his best in a long time. Yeah, it's hard um, hard to explain. I think that there is a substantial, there are a substantial number of Americans who really detest Washington. They see Donald Trump as a wrecking ball. They see Washington screaming in pain and in concern, and they think this is good for the country, that this sort of damage uh, to our brand, to our global stature, will make it less likely that America will get overextended in the future, will meddle in things it shouldn't do in the future, will get out of things, will shrink its budgets and commitments, that somehow out of this chaos will become a diminished and smaller government perhaps a less globally meddlesome United States. And, and, I, and, and you know, I get that. Some of the people I, I know and, and respect saw the antithesis to Trump, you know, politically as something they, they didn't want to stomach because they just saw a continuity of a kind of global American imperialism as they saw it in the world. So I understand why some people see Trump as a muscular wrecking ball taking down Washington and support that. And they're not political junkies, so they're not read in to 
all of the fine details of what may be happening. But I hope when pipe bombs are be sending in mass to political leaders that a lot of people will rethink some of that support and the climate and the toxicity of this time and why it's not good. Is there a reverse message that can come up against the the America first clarity that the president has? He's he's clearly going to drive this message uh, hard throughout the rest of his presidency. And the, the counter narrative just doesn't um, that the world is more complex or that, uh, you know, we need more, more government programs that I, I'm not, is that really going to do the trick to, to counter this um, kind of patriotic narrative? I think the counter narrative that needs to develop further is that right now the world is messy. Nations are cyber sabotaging each other potentially, we have a greater fragility as the world shifts, as China rises, and we do need to look at some of those principles about what happens. But withdrawing from all of these key issues and thinking you can live behind a wall in the United States doesn't solve climate change, it doesn't solve global terror, it doesn't solve the problems of poverty and pandemics. And there is this illusion that somehow if we withdraw from all of these structures and commitments internationally, that we're going to be better off. And the truth is we're going to be worse off because we will have less leverage on every international issue out there that when America has its dark day, other nations will not marshal up to help us. That's the narrative that should be out there. And I'm disappointed that we're not seeing a more robust commitment to that kind of um, principled internationalism that both Republicans and Democrats have traditionally uh, held on to. Steve Clemens is Washington Editor-at-Large for The Atlantic. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about our situation today. My pleasure, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with Ophelia Dahl, one of the co-founders of the groundbreaking humanitarian organization Partners in Health. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you are listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The organization Partners in Health is committed to providing health care to some of the world's poorest people. They now work in 10 countries, but they were founded in Haiti in the early 80s. One of the co-founders is here with me. Ophelia Dahl is now chair of the board after serving as executive director for 15 years. It's great to meet you. Thank you. It's good to be here. I've talked to your co-founder, Paul Farmer, once. Tracy Kidder wrote a big book about him, a biography. And your other co-founder, Jim Yong Kim, is the head of the World Bank now. They're both physician types. You are not a physician type. You are the daughter of famous people, the children's book author, Roald Dahl, and uh, the actress, Patricia O'Neill. How did you get hooked up with healthcare? I went to Haiti in 1983 when I was 18 and a volunteer, wanted to volunteer, did not know what I wanted to do with my life. And one of the things that my father had stressed to all of us is to go off and have a look at another place and uh, make sure that you don't stay within the confounds of your own relatively small life. And so 
I said, okay, sure. And I wrote to an organization based in Washington, D.C., and they were good enough to say, you can go down to Haiti. And when I say good enough, because I was 18 and I I had no skills. Um, <laughs> I had a lot of energy, and, and I thought um, rather naively that I could be really useful. And, of course, it didn't take me long to realize that I couldn't be that useful. What were you supposed to be doing? I was volunteering for an ophthalmic organization, and I was a general dog's body. I was helping to pack boxes. I was going on outreach clinics. I was um, painting clinic rooms, that sort of thing. But really what was happening is that I was getting a good look at what was happening there and what was happening to people who were being traditionally very shafted by having no system. What made you stick? What made you stick around in Haiti? Completely because of the people that I met there. So first of all, I met great Haitian people who I started having extraordinary conversations about, about translating what I was seeing in front of me. And then fundamentally, I I met Paul Farmer. And he's a good person to meet when you're 18 and wondering what to do with your life. And we clicked completely. And we spent many, many weeks then talking about what we saw in front of us and how we could use our own good fortune to help other people. What philosophy did you come up with at the time? Because it sounds like you wanted to do something different. And partners in health as I seemed different than other things. What was the going moment that you knew you had a philosophy that you could move forward with? Well, I think that the going philosophy at the time was how can we be most helpful as young people without an organization around us? How can we be effective? What can we bring to this that would make this good and useful for the people who have nothing in terms of healthcare or education? So it was making sure that we went in there not with our own ideas of what we thought was needed, but we went in there to listen. And Paul is an anthropologist. And one of the things that he was doing at the time was ethnography. And I got to have a good look at somebody listening to a community. And I listened as well. And they were very clear about what they needed in this particular small community. And I think it's important to point out, we didn't go across Haiti. We were in this little community where there was a squatter settlement. People had been displaced by a large hydroelectric dam. And we said, what is it you need? And they said, we need, first of all, a clinic. We need some sort of health care and we need a school. How did you go from there? I mean, you became uh, something that works in 10 countries. Why did you ever want to expand beyond Haiti? Well, what we found out over time was that what we were doing there, which is serving the population, which is training local people, treating patients, helping to build infrastructure, was actually working. People were coming to the clinics. And in fact, so many people were coming to our clinic, which we had built, that we realized that the public sector must be broken as well. And that was when we said, you know, we can't have all of the central plateau of Haiti who need healthcare coming to our little charity clinic. We need to find a way, if we really believe that healthcare is a right, we need to make sure that we can partner with the government to ensure that that is how it's delivered. So we, we branched out. We branched out and we branched out first across the central plateau of Haiti. This was around the time that HIV was really cresting in the mid-80s. So we started treating patients with HIV, and we were invited to other countries. And, you know, it's amazing how quickly when you do something that is effective, that you're invited to stay and you're invited to new places. What is the philosophy that makes it portable? What is the idea that you're coalescing around here? 
I realize that we're reluctant to refer to it as a model, but I think it's helpful for people to understand that there are components to what is needed where there is nothing, meaning no medical care whatsoever. We realized very quickly that if people were very sick, you had to bring health care to them. If you build a shiny hospital or even a shiny clinic, people are sometimes too sick to even get there. So we realized we had to do the actual healthcare in the community. So we trained a big cadre of community health workers. They then treated patients in their villages or in their homes. That fed into a clinic system, which we helped to shore up, which feeds into a tertiary hospital. I'm making it sound very neat and easy. It takes a long time and a lot of good partnerships, but that's essentially the model itself. You need clinicians and you need supply chain you need IT, you need all kinds of experts, you need pharmacists. You can't do this thinking, oh, we only need that piece of it. You know, we're humans and we're complicated and we need a system. I'm talking with Ophelia Dahl. She's now chair of the Board of Partners in Health, the organization that she helped co-found in the early 1980s. I know that you've got a university now in Rwanda. Tell us about the idea of starting a place where healthcare workers can come and learn. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we realized pretty quickly was you can't sustain any kind of a system if you're only looking for people from this country or from Europe to come and help to build it. You have to be able to train local people. So we realized that actually the training part of this and the research and the education would be a very important component. And so we've always felt that you have to connect things to a research university. So we've in the midst of building a university to global health equity, the first of its kind. And it actually teaches not just the clinical part of this, but the delivery science piece of this. So how can we utilize pharmacists and supply chain experts? How can we teach this so that really sort of proving what's possible to do so that it's impossible not to do it? And the object is not necessarily to create physicians, but healthcare providers who are more practical. Exactly. All of the people that would be in a system here when someone goes to rush, all of the things that when you go and you need a blood test and then you need to go to a pharmacy and then you need to see a occupational therapist, all of those components, all of those people that make up that piece of the system, they all have to be trained. And I think too often you have people who say, oh, we'll have a community health worker or a doctor or a nurse. And instead of saying, you need the whole shebang to really make this work. Where is as an example of where that's really worked out well? Do you ever get the ship running so good that you can turn it over to people, the government, and, and let it go? Absolutely. Rwanda is a good example of being able to see so much improvement there in the last 10 years, working really closely with the government, with the Ministry of Health. We've seen a complete turnaround in terms of the mortality and, and health statistics of that population. And that is the real determination to invest in the whole system. So that includes investing in, in the economics of it, but also making sure you have NICUs and health centers and vaccination programs and education and economic opportunities. We've worked with them and now they're putting huge amounts into this effort and including the great pledges and commitments to build infrastructure for this new university. Rwanda is a place that leader Paul Kagame, he's not exactly a uh, 
Democrat. He's, he's someone who's kind of instituted himself for life there. Uh, NGOs like working there. A lot of NGOs work there. Uh, are there problems with working with the Rwandan government? You know, we haven't found any problems working with them. In fact, I would say that actually over 30 years of working in all kinds of different countries, working with a government that has a very clear mandate to be able to make sure that healthcare is afforded across the land has been clear to us. I mean, by contrast, in Haiti, a country that we're devoted to and have many colleagues and have made many, many gains there, there are 11,000 NGOs all working, all trying to do a good job, all entirely unlinked in any way. In Rwanda, the government's very clear about you can't just come into this country and say, okay, we're going to build you latrines and we're going to have a little school here and we're going to do this. They say, we'll tell you what you're going to do. And that for us was a very clear mandate. So we we have not found it problematic. We find it always challenging to work with governments. There's no question. It's um, their bureaucracies. But this is one in which we've we've been able to make great strides. Initially, Partners in Health didn't take money from like the U.S. government or something. But eventually you thought we'd better. Yeah, we had an about turn on that. I remember it well, actually, and it was around about the time when public funding and USAID was really trying to make sure that money to treat HIV and to actually deliver antiretroviral therapy to Haitians was there. And I remember taking what I thought was a principled stance, working in Boston and saying, under the administration at the time, it's okay. We, we felt very much as though the forces that had influenced and had impoverished Haiti were largely U.S. forces. And so we felt like it would be a conflict of interest. So I expressed that to my colleagues and said, you know, in a rather, now I think back on it, a sort of a, a rather sort of self-satisfied way. No, thank you. We won't take your money. It's okay. We'll wait until maybe another administration. And my colleagues and doctors said to me very clearly, like, you don't listen to the patients knocking on your door saying, where are the antiretrovirals? And I said, you're right. I don't. What was I thinking? And they said, send the money down. You know, we need it to treat patients. And that was really our opening in. And we've, you know, we came to it late. And I think we're still trying to gather more and more um, resources from this country and to be able to treat more patients. Good news. One of the co-founders of the, uh, your organization is the head of the World Bank. You can just cash in now. I know. I know. If only there was an ATM, I'd love it's like, go in there, take an ATM, get the money, get the cash. No, he and the World Bank, I think, have been extremely helpful in looking at this. In fact, Jim was one of the people that raised the alarm around the Ebola virus in, in West Africa. I mean, when we, when Paul came back from a conference there and said, this is a disaster and we need to mobilize and as many resources as we can from here, Jim called a meeting and, and suggested that a lot of money be raised to be able to try and reinforce what was going on. Was that unusual for you because you're not a emergency healthcare organization? You're right. It was unusual. It wasn't unusual for us to res have to respond to a crisis. We have, in the places in which we work, there are continuous catastrophes, and usually because Places in which we work are, are vulnerable. So we have, you know, floods and earthquakes and that sort of thing that have disproportionately affected all of the people living there. So we're used to working in that environment. We, we never have gone to a place because there is a crisis and we've been invited in. So th that was a first for us. And we had partner organizations that invited us and we had willing government participation. And we said, well, 
we're not going to go there just to treat it. We're going to have to go there and, and help to shore up the health system. And that's a commitment of at least 10 years. So we knew when we were going in, it was not going to be a, you know, let's go in, set up an Ebola treatment unit. And then when the Ebola crisis is over, let's leave. Let's just try and create a system so that when Ebola next comes, there'll be some way to uh, stand up to it. What did you learn about West Africa um, from being there? Well, we learned that West Africa is still recovering from the long and terrible civil war in Liberia, wars in Liberia and Sierra Leone, that the health system is perhaps the weakest that we've ever seen. And we, PIH, works in very rural settings. So, you know, we already challenge ourselves. We know where we're going. It's going to be pretty bleak and we work in clinical deserts. But this was the weakest system we've ever seen. So we had to really start from scratch and we're doing that. I'm talking with Ophelia Dahl. She's now chair of the Board of Partners in Health. She's a co-founder, and uh, we're talking about some of their initiatives. I know you've had an, an emphasis on maternal mortality and child mortality recently, and that there's a uh, women's alliance that is launched uh, here in Chicago. Uh, what kind of thing is this? The women's alliance, we have a great team of people in Chicago who have for years now actually there are Chicagoans that have really become champions of the work, and they've visited Haiti, and they've connected to um, the work here, and they've started something called a, a Women's Alliance to make sure that they can really leverage their connections and their interest and, um, and partner with us. So, you know, there are people that I'm sure are well-known in Chicago, people like Marjorie Benton, and Representative Jan Schakowsky was one of the people that introduced us to this very supportive community. And now in this Women's Alliance is focusing on maternal mortality and what can be done to prevent these extremely preventable deaths in labor and delivery and make sure that we have some of the things that we need. Where do you want to see the organization go in the future? It's got to be uh, <laughs> daunting to just expand. Do you want to have a sense of completion about your effort? I don't imagine that in my lifetime that we will be able to say, you know, we've done this and we can check this box. But I do think, and I've already seen this, that when you invest in institutions and create new universities, it's a game changer. It's an entire landscape changer. And we've, we've seen what happens when you start residency programs and train doctors and nurses and do all of this kind of thing. All of the places in which we work they have not had those educational opportunities. That's why American doctors and European doctors tend to go out to these places and they volunteer as much as they can. Much better if you actually build a system in which you've got doctors there. So most exciting for me is that we are building university there and we have University Hospital in central Haiti in Mirbalay, a place where actually we've had a lot of support from people in Chicago. I'll tell you a story about the university. It's the University Hospital of Mirbalay, we built that after the earthquake with some of the support that generous Americans gave to us. We built it relatively quickly. It's a teaching hospital. It's a modern teaching hospital. It has an enormous uh, uh, number of patients that visit it every day. And you know, one of our colleagues said something like to Paul Farmer recently, why did you call it University Hospital out here in the middle of rural Haiti? There's no university. And Paul said, not yet, there's not. So... My sense is that we're always striving to be able to say, yeah, there should be a university in central Haiti. Of course there should be. And there should be a university global health equity in northern Rwanda. 
those are the ways that I think we're going to really get to these big solutions for complex problems. Ophelia Dahl is now chair of the Board of Partners in Health. She was executive director for 15 years as a co-founder. Thanks a lot for joining us and keep up the good work. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the book, after the break, we'll hear about a new children's book that's based on Mayan culture and offers a timely wisdom for a planet in peril. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a new children's book based on the true story of a man who preserved his culture and beliefs during the darkest days of Guatemala's Civil War. The book is Margarito's Forest, and it won the most inspirational children's picture book at the Latino Book Awards. Its author, Andy Carter, is here, as well as illustrator Allison Havens. It is good to meet you both. Thank you for having us, Jerome. Yeah, thank you. Um, this book is... It has such an interesting backstory. Uh, you, it's an outgrowth of 30 years of involvement between a Guatemalan village and your church. Um, Andy, tell us about the how you got involved in this whole thing. Well, um, this partnership was started by, by Virgilio Vicente, who came to uh, Chicago through the Sanctuary move, Movement in 1986. And... Um, and Allison, you were going to uh, say a little bit about uh, that, the background of how, how we got this thing. Because Allison, uh, th- this partner, started through the sanctuary movement, but Allison was a child in our church when Virgilio came into sanctuary. And that's part of how her, I think, uh, she uh, connected with this. Yeah, so the um, so in the 80s, there, there were many uh, refugees' families coming from Guatemala and El Salvador um, that were fleeing persecution during the, the civil war and genocide in those countries during that time. Um, and the sanctuary movement was a movement of faith communities um, around the U.S. and Canada that um, brought in these families into their communities to provide them refuge, sanctuary, um, to, to help them resettle in the U.S. Um, so during ch- in Chicago, um, when I was growing up, the church, University Church, brought in Virgilio Vicente and his family, who um, were from the rural uh, Guatemalan community of Sacha. Um, and they resettled in, in Hyde Park in Chicago, and I grew up with their children and other uh, Guatemalan families that had come to Chicago during that time as well. Um, so when I was growing up, I was very aware of the the atrocities happening at the time, the genocide in Guatemala, um, and in, thanks in part to my, my family's involvement in the University Church community at that time. Um, so so I actually, um, fast forward, eight, eight years ago, I, I did move to Guatemala um, to pursue community arts work. Um, my background's in art, um, as well as other social work. Um, so I was living in Chicago. I mean, sorry, <laughs> I was living in Guatemala at the time when Andy 
approached me with the idea of of doing this book um, because the backstory is for Helio Vicente um, and his community decided to rebuild the community of Sakha after the peace accords were signed uh, were signed in the nineties. And so there was a whole process of accompaniment uh, with that community as they re- rebuilt um, their village in Sakha. And you learned the story of his father, essentially, which is uh, Margarito's forest, Margarito's story. Well, yeah. In, in 1998, uh, Virgilio and, and members from the University Church made a first a trip back to work on the rebuilding of his village that had been destroyed in this war. And... Um, own that uh, every year since then, uh, 1998, except for one, a delegation has gone from University Church, and, and a strong, the strong partnership has been set up. Um, and so uh, in 2007, I went on my first delegation uh, with uh, a group from University Church, and Don Vigilio was one of the leaders for that. And own that... Uh, 2007, I was inspired by the resilience and the courage of these people in, in, in Saka. Their village had been totally destroyed, burnt to the ground by the military in 1981 and 82. And when I went in 2007, I saw the, the strength of the, uh, the, uh, of, of the Maya. And I was inspired by that. Also on that trip, um, Don Virgilio told me about this person, Margarito, in his forest. And he planted a seed that I was I was interested in that, and and so the 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 inspiration and the idea for Margarito's Forest came on that 2007 uh, delegation trip to tell tell me the story uh, that is the book essentially. Okay. So, uh, as you said, it's a story about a Maya man who loved trees and planted a forest, but it's, it's based upon a series of interviews that I did with Maria Guadalupe, who is the daughter of Don Margarito. And, and the story, um, she, she uh, talked, uh, we had in these interviews, she told me about how uh, Don Margarito had, had helped her learn how to um, what you could eat in the forest and uh, what kinds of plants. And he would take her into the woodlands and show her a plant that she, uh, uh, that might, she might use for food or for medicine. And so he inculcated in her an appreciation for the environment. He also he rec- and, and he recognized that there was a need for forests. Most of the folks at that point were clearing land to plant uh, to, uh, corn and beans to feed their family. But Margarito was planting this forest. And in, in, in talking to Maria Guadalupe, she shared his notion that uh, how important the forest was to all the, the things that they could grow there. And um, so she was a tremendous inspiration for this book. And uh, Allison did interviews with uh, Maria Guadalupe as well. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, so for for the illustrations for the book, when Andy asked me to become involved, um, I spent uh, several visits in the community and did help do interviews with Maria Guadalupe and did activities with the children as well in Sakha. Um, so the illustrations that we did for the book, um, they include drawings that the children did based on 
Maria Guadalupe sharing her story with the children um, and then and them drawing pictures of parts of the story and parts of the the forest that she has there that's the legacy of her father um, so the so the project is is really a big collaborative project with the children the community with Guada, Maria Guadalupe um, Andy the community here in Chicago um, and the illustrations we're going to be showing them tomorrow evening um, we're going to have an exhibition um, and they include collages of you know the children, my own work as well. It's kind of a heavy thing to be responsible for telling the story of Mayan cosmology and yeah. life. It, that's a, that's a, kind of a heavy swallow, a heavy burden to take on. Uh, uh, how did you feel about that? It, well, and in, in a children's book too. So, yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that I, I since the publication of the book in 2016, in talking to various groups, I think uh, um, it's seen as not just a children's book. It, 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 it deals with the context of, of what happened in the war in Guatemala. It's not... It's not a central thing, but a key point in the in the story is that their village was destroyed, and Maria Guadalupe had to, she oh she tells these heart rending stories about how when the village was destroyed, she had two children, and she left uh, she left the, the village. Um, Margarito would not leave, and he was he was killed. Uh, eventually, they they found. An, kind of gruesome, but it was a very gruesome thing. She, Maria Guadalupe, lived in the, um, what she called the jungle for six years, moving around from camp to camp, um, trying to stay away from the military. And it was a very, very uh, difficult time. And and I guess one of the, for me, the inspiration is seeing that the strength of Maria Guadalupe, and she loves to talk about all the things that she learned from Margarito. And, and she says that when she had to live in the jungle with young children, um, that what saved her is she knew which um, weed, and these are the words, she weeds and roots she could eat. And, and so she was able to uh, sustain herself. But it was the knowledge that had been passed on to her by Don, Marie, uh, Don Margarito that helped her survive in, in these extraordinary, extraordinary times. And I would just add that um, also throughout this process, we, we've had several, di- Andy's had different, several versions of the story um, <laughs> that we've taken, that each time we take it to the community, we read it to the community, read it to Maria Guadalupe. Um, and so it's been a much back and forth process. Um, in addition with the, the illustrations, we actually um, showed her the illustrations, and in one of them, um, where she's running from in the forest with her children, um, escaping the military, she said, you know, they, they shot my arm with, there's a bullet wound in my arm, and I would appreciate if you could put that into the illustration. Um, so that's, if you if you see the book, you see there's an illustration, and there is blood that I added to, to her arm in that. Um, so I think this whole process... Um, We've been really trying to make it collaborative. Um, the purpose of the book was really to to provide something primarily for the Sakha community so they could share this story with their children. Um, in Guatemala, there's a lack of 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 stories that or history really that are taught to children in school about the war, about indigenous identity in Mayan culture. So I think part of this project is really to 
to raise funds as well to prevent um, print more copies of this book for other communities in Guatemala. We're talking about the book Margarito's Forest. It's a children's book. Author Andy Carter is here, as well as illustrator Allison Havens. And they're going to have an event at the Sanctuary Cafe on Friday night. And you're trying to bring more people into this circle of um, getting books and sending books to Guatemala. And your event on Friday night will encourage people to do that. Um, how do the books go over when they're in Guatemala and you use them as teaching tools. You've got some curriculum up on the website, margaritasforest.com, and you try to, you're, you're trying to send some lessons and messages there. Um, so with my work in Guatemala, um, I've helped, we, we printed around 500 copies um, of the original Quiche in Spanish version that we've given to the Saka community as well as other Quiche speaking communities. And I get, all I can say is that there's very few, very few, you can count them on your hands, number of literature for children in Guatemala that has their indigenous language and is telling stories and history about their, their culture. Um, so the reactions that we've gotten from the 500 books have been really outstanding. Um, people, families really appreciate it. Um, communities, teachers really appreciate having a tool to be able to talk to children, talk with the next generation about important history, important cultural values, um, environmentalism, all these really important themes that um, there's very few educational resources in Guatemala. Um, so one of our big passions is to really um, share this story, and thanks to Maria Guadalupe, who gave us, who's who's gave us her trust, and who is really excited to have her story and the story of her community as well be shared um, with other groups. So this year, uh, when I, I went to Guatemala with the delegation in April and May, I met with um, one of the teachers at the school in Saca who teaches Quiche. And she gave me this testimonial about how useful Margarito's Forest is to her because, like Allison said, she didn't – the materials that she had about teaching Quiche, about teaching Quiche were just about teaching Quiche. She didn't have any uh, stories. And so with this book, I, I, she had classroom copies. And so every child had a copy. And, and, and what she pointed out to me is that they – the, the, the children in in the village, they grow up speaking Quiche, the indigenous language. As soon as they go to school, they're taught to read and write Spanish. And and they don't know how to read and write in Quiche. And so the school had as one of its goals to teach Quiche. And so in this past, I talked to the, the teacher who is uh, using the book, and she said she hasn't it, she's been more successful with teaching children to read and write in Quiche using this book than anything else before because she can read a line of Spanish and then read a line of Quiche. And, and students can connect their their uh, ability to read and write in Spanish to actual text in Quiche. So it, for me, it gave a real... Um, um, uh, I guess incentive that the the this book is useful in teaching uh, reading and writing in Quiche, the revitalization of indigenous languages, and so, and that's what um, the Maya Book Project. Uh, its goal is to promote cultural preservation through the revitalization of indigenous languages in the Maya communities in Guatemala, primarily through the publication, uh, through Margarito's Forest, both in Quiche, and, and we would like to put it into other indigenous languages as well. So that's a terrific goal. Um, and the Mayan Book Project, you're, you're kicking it off essentially with this book, and you're going to fire it up. 
with more in the future. Yes, we'd like. There are other groups have come forward. Uh, Mom and Nick Steele, uh, other in uh, Mayan languages, they have come to us and said, "This is our story. Can't you do this book in our indigenous language? Because so we, <laughs> we want to preserve our, we want to remodelize our language. So, and that's a real goal for us. That's awesome. Well, uh, Andy Carter, guy, you're you're like a. You're a professor from uh, Roosevelt, and yeah. now, now you are the indigenous book publisher for, for Central America. <laughs> that's, 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 uh, it has been such a – to work with Al, Allison, has, her, her art, she, she, she understood what was going on, and it's, it's an inspiration. I hope people can come to University Church to see these beautiful collages up close. It's an amazing thing. We'll have this celebration tomorrow night. Please come and join us. So you're, uh, tell us more. You're going to exhibit the, the collages themselves, the originals. Yeah, so we're, we're exhibiting the, the collages, the original artwork. We're selling them as well. Um, and we're also— You're we're, going to sell your babies. We like, are. Yes. We're selling them. And it's because the main point is to, to fundraise money for the book project. So part of the, most of the proceeds of the sale, and we're going to be selling books. We're going to be— doing fundraising, um, and we'll be talking more in depth. We'll be t- Virgilio Versente, who who is the original, um, who's from Sacra. He's going to be speaking. We're going to be talking more about the history of the sanctuary movement, about the book, about the illustrations. So it'll be a really wonderful event, and we hope people can come out. And um, you can also buy the book online as well if you can't make it. <laughs> Margaritosforest.com uh, is the website, and the event is at Sanctuary Cafe University Church, 5655 South University Avenue, and admission is free with a suggested donation of buy a book for a school in Guatemala. Great to meet you guys, and congratulations on everything you've accomplished here. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Jerome, for having us. Andy Carter is the author, and Allison Havens is the illustrator of Margarito's Forest. Tomorrow on Worldview, I'm taking the day off. Steve Bynum will host, and he'll talk with Evo Dalder and James Lindsay about their new book about U.S. foreign policy. Uh, stay with us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.